this is the purpose of the reading rant. This is why we do it. Um, I do it to empower believers. I do it to engage you in the scriptures because I believe that the most critical and the most important endeavor of any believer is the reading of scripture. That's, that's aside from prayer. It's the most important endeavor. Not only is scripture spiritual food that builds you up, but your time in the scripture protects you from the false teachings that you'll receive in your churches, um, in the churches today. The reason why I believe a lot of Christians fall into false teaching or fall into passive faith, fall into um, um, all the, the things that we see that, that, that lead to other toxicities in the church really is rooted out of the fact that people just don't discipline themselves in the word. Um, you cannot get you think about it this way, right? If let's say the average sermon now is 30 minutes and you have 52 weeks in the year. Okay. You have 52 weeks in the year. And let's say you have perfect attendance on Sunday, which most of you can agree that you don't, I don't, um, have perfect attendance on Sundays. If you had perfect attendance on Sundays, that means, and the only time you get exposed to the word is when you come to church on Sunday. Do you understand that you, you, you've literally only exposed yourself to the word for 26 minutes every year, 26 minutes. And that's if you had perfect attendance and if you, and that's assuming the sermon was half an hour and that's assuming that the sermon was preaching the scripture in the first place. <laughs> so imagine now why a lot of believers fall into false doctrines, false understandings. They never really grow in their faith. They never mature in their faith. They never mature in the power of God because they don't read scripture. And that's why we're here. And that's why we're engaging um, in the scripture. And that's my passion. My passion is to see every believer say that I've read through the entire Bible on my own. And so that's what we've done. I share that here because this is my first official time starting with uh, our IG fam and our IG people. And so, um, sorry, 26 hours. Thank you. 26 hours um, um, in the scripture. Uh, thank you for, for bringing that up. Because I think I did. I said minutes, 26 hours. And so, um, so family, th this is why we're here. We're here to engage in the scripture. So you can go and turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. With our TikTok fam, we've gone through the entire New Testament. We've read through the entire New Testament. And now we're going through the Old Testament. Um, we've read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And now we're reading through the book of Numbers. And we're in Numbers chapter 21. So we're going, we're getting to the end of the book of Numbers. Before I start this, and I'm only doing this today uh, before we read, and I know this, um, I know this is a little bit out of rhythm for, um, my Facebook fam and my TikTok fam, but I want to do this for my IG fam as well, because as you read, I believe that in reading the scriptures with the right posture, it is a profoundly transformative endeavor. Um, it will transform you. A lot of people have said that their lives have been transformed just simply coming here every morning and reading through scripture. But I also want you to read through scripture with the proper perspective, okay? Proper perspective. Is there anything I want to give you today is perspective. Okay? Perspective is important. Perspective is critical. Making sure you're reading. I know the really fancy terminology for it is hermeneutic, um, meaning reading the scripture with the right lens, with the proper hermeneutic, um, reading the scripture in the way that it ought to be read, because often many of us do not read the scripture in the way that it ought to be read. And so this may turn some people off, but I want you to do this real quick. Okay. I want you to back up as we read the scripture. I want you to back up 
Um, we, we, we did read it with a cheat code because we read the New Testament. That's the cheat code. Okay. We're in the Old Testament now. And the Old Testament, we're, we're left with a continual and constant tension. But I want to make sure at least I give you perspective. Remember, right now we're reading in the Pentateuch. Um, that's uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Penta, Five, Tuk, Law. So, so the five books of what we call the Mosaic Law um, um, that, that embody or encompass the Torah. Now, the, the Pentateuch, and I want to make sure everybody understands this. These five books were not written to you. When we read this, and I know I'm already making some people uncomfortable, but when we read this, I want you to change your posture in the way that you read it. These five books were not written to you. Genesis was not written to you. Exodus was not written to you. Leviticus was not written to you. Numbers, Deuteronomy, these books were not written to you. These books were written for you. Okay? I've said this over and over again. I'm going to continue to reiterate this. These books were not written to you. They were written for you. Who were these books written to? These books were written to the children of Israel. Okay? These books were written to the children of Israel. So it's important when you're reading, as we read along, that you're not reading as if this is written to you. It is written for you. Okay? I got to make sure I posture you this way. And so as we're reading through the book of Numbers, I just want to, I know you guys may not have caught it. If you guys, I, I want to encourage you to go on um, on our Facebook group where you can catch all the other all the other, uh, uh, all the other read and rants. But if you, if you, you know, if you, if you haven't read through it and you haven't seen the other read and rants, then I want to at least give you a primer here as we get into the book, because we have to read the Bible from a broad lens first, before we can read it from a specific lens. This is the error a lot of people make. They start reading these verses within out of context or they read the verses but they read it in a vacuum and when you read these verses in a vacuum you lose the perspective and that's why it gets really it gets really dangerous when christians just read a verse and they build their entire doctrines they build their entire um point of view they build they build all of that around a verse or around a few verses no, you've got to read the Bible from the grand narrative. You have to read the Bible from the grand story. When you read the scripture from the grand story, then you begin to understand the purpose of Jesus in the first place. Why, who Jesus is, what Jesus actually accomplished. You know, a lot of people, they say, well, Jesus saved me, but they don't even understand what that even means. Like, these are the things we want to make sure you understand what it means to be uh, um, saved. And so... Um, and, and how we're saved and how we experience salvation and what Jesus and what Christ actually accomplished on the cross. A lot of people don't really know that. They don't really understand that. Um, they have this sort of vague understanding of it. And this is, this is, you know, this is what we're here to do. This is what we're here to accomplish. This is what we're here to do. So um, let me just quickly give you the picture here. And then just give me two minutes here. I want to quickly give you a picture and then we're going to read. Today we're going to read a little bit shorter because we're not afforded as much time, but we're going to read um, 
we'll read maybe for, for about 10 minutes, okay? But usually we spend about 20 to 30 minutes reading. But today we'll read a little shorter because I want to make sure I bring everybody in with me because today is our first day bringing our IG family in. And so I hope this transforms your way of, I hope it transforms the way you think. I hope it transforms your lives. I hope it sets you free so that you can now begin to really walk in the anointing and walk in the calling and to know what it means to be uh, in Christ. Like, I, I hope what this does is it just transforms everything in your life. Okay. That's what I hope this does. So um, this is the narrative. Thank you. I appreciate that. I always get, you know, uh, I always get compliments for my voice. Thank you. I appreciate that. Probably got into the wrong career. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What's the purpose of it? What is the purpose of these books? We're going to get it. I'm going to, I'm going to lead you up to numbers. We're going to continue reading on from here, but we have Genesis, we have Exodus, we have Leviticus. And often we read it. And the first mistake that Christians make is they read it as if it's written to them. No, it's not written to you. Okay. It is not written to you. It was written to the children of Israel. More specifically, Moses, when he wrote the Mosaic law, right, first chronicled the creation of all things. God created everything and he created everything in its perfection. Um, but he created man to be his imager on earth. Man was his imager on earth. He said, let us create man in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them, create, or in the King James Version, created he, them. And, and, um, and so, and so he creates man, his image, man is his representative. Man fails to represent him well on earth. And for that reason, God separates himself from man. Sin comes into the world. And as sin comes into the world, comes jealousy, comes strife, comes division, comes everything that we see, sickness, disease, all that is bad in the world came through man, man bringing it in by, um, through his disobedience with God at the garden of Eden. Now, Again, I left a lot of things out, but I just want to give you perspective. From here on now, all we see is pestilence. All we see is destruction. All we see is disease. All we see are these things. God then says that he desired to bring his righteousness and justice back to earth again, to restore all things. Since Genesis chapter three, God has been in the business of restoring all things. But if God is doing anything on the earth, he's doing it through mankind. Okay? That's what it means for us to be images of God. God isn't doing anything on earth without human participation. So through mankind, God is going to restore the earth. Through mankind, he's going to restore all things unto him. Through mankind, he's going to restore his justice and his righteousness on earth. That is what God is going to do. How does God do that? He does that through a man named Abraham. Abraham was chosen by God. God chose Abraham because of Abraham's faith. His choosing was sealed. He told Abraham, through you will come the restoration of all nations. He made them, he made him the father of many nations. So he's going to restore all people through his family. Abraham now begets Isaac. Isaac, he even tells him, he says, through your family, they will institute righteousness and justice. This is Genesis chapter 11, I believe. Okay, so you can look at that in Genesis chapter 11. Again, the story continues on. He institutes righteousness and justice. This is actually now, you're beginning to see the story that the Bible, the backbone of the scripture is actually a people. It's a bloodline. The backbone of the Bible are the children of Abraham. That's the backbone of the scripture. 
And through the children of Abraham would come the restoration of all people. Okay? That's what you'll see throughout the entire story. These children, Abraham begets Isaac. Isaac begets Jacob. Jacob changes his name to Israel. All this happens in Genesis. Israel begets 12 sons. These 12 sons, because of a famine, end up in Egypt. Spend too much time in Egypt, and so it ends with them in Egypt. That's how Genesis ends. He starts, he institutes, and calls this family to bring righteousness and justice to all the earth. Now, what happens next? What happens next is, is an exodus. It begins with them spending too much time in a land that wasn't theirs. And so as a result, they became, uh, they, they fell under the oppression of the Egyptians. And now this family becomes a nation of people, okay? Where the 12 tribes were led by the 12 sons. And so now this nation of people, right? Out of that nation, God called Moses would draw them out. And so they were, they exited Egypt to return back to the land that God had promised them to be the ministers of God on earth, to be the restorers of all things. This is what it means actually to be the chosen people of God, to be the chosen people of God. Cause I know there's all this doctrine about, Oh, you know, we're the Hebrew Israelites and we're the chosen people of God. There's all this, 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 this talk about the chosen people of God. We're the chosen people of God. We don't even, I, I've always asked that. What does it mean to be chosen? Being chosen did not mean that you would have economic power. Being chosen did not mean that you would have political power. Being chosen did not imply that you would have some kind of military might or military power. The scriptures tell us very clearly what God chose these people to do. He chose them to be the ministers of righteous and justice on earth. He chose them to be a nation of priests. That's what they were chosen to do. They were chosen to be the mediators between God and the rest of mankind, a nation of priests. Okay. Um, and we know what happens, right? We know uh, what happens next because through Exodus, right? As they exit, they stop at Mount Sinai and at Mount Sinai, God reinstitutes the promise that he made to Abraham that it's through his bloodline that all nations would be restored. At Mount Sinai, God made a covenant. Good morning, Ellison. Good to see you, buddy. At Mount Sinai. Now, God makes a covenant with these people to fulfill the promise that he made with Abraham. Is everybody with me there? He, 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 he made a covenant with them that he will be their God, they will be his people, and that his presence would rest in them and that through them God's presence would manifest on the earth. God would use these people, this nation of priests, to show what God is like and to bring the kingdom of God on earth. That was the purpose of the children of Israel. Are y'all with me so far? I'm sorry, this reading rant might be more ranting than reading, but I want to catch everybody up. I, I hope I hope I don't annoy my uh, my TikTok fan because they probably heard this multiple times, so hopefully this will be encouraging to you as you continue to hear it. Oh, that's awesome, man. I got 250 people on TikTok. That's what's up. Um, um, but but now now he chooses these people of God now to be the ministers of righteous righteousness and justice on earth. Are you with me so far? Genesis family begins. God calls a family to restore all of humanity. Exodus this family becomes a nation in captivity that now has been has left captivity and now is is about to go into the wilderness to go back to the land that was promised to them. Okay. So they stop at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with them. 
He makes a covenant with those people. That's what Exodus is about. And in that covenant, he calls them to be the nation of priests that will show the world what God is like. Now, here's the thing. The covenant now cannot be sealed without a law. That's why there's a difference between covenant and law. The covenant was the contract that these people made. They agreed with God, sealed in blood. They agreed that they would be the people that God called them to be. Are y'all with me? They agreed for them to be what God called them to be. And God would promise them that he would be with them. They in God, God in them, they would be the ministers, the, uh, the, what's the word I want to use? Ambassadors of God on earth. That was their agreement. And so he gave them a law. The law was intended to shape them into becoming the nation of priests that they were called for the entire world. Notice God set them aside to bring righteousness and justice on earth. The law was intended to shape them to become this nation of priests. That was the purpose of the law. So the law was not written to you. The law was written to the children of Israel. And this is going to make some people uncomfortable now, but we got to make sure we get our doctrine right. The Ten Commandments then, when you read them, you cannot read them as if they're written to you. They were written to the children of Israel. This is the mistake that a lot of Christians make. They read the, the, the Torah and they read it as if these are the laws, the rules, the regulations that Christians must follow in order to be Christians. Wrong. The law wasn't even written to you. The Ten Commandments were not written to you. The following laws afterwards that we see in Exodus were not written to you. Okay. They were written to the children of Israel. All right. They were written to the children of Israel. Now, here's what happens though. They give the law to the children of Israel. And what does the scriptures tell us? Now notice the law is the law. And that's another thing I wanted. Let me, let me do a little quick side note here. All right. I'm just going to rant today. Stay with me, Ellison. We might not read as much today. Um, but here's the thing. We have to understand what the law is. Okay. The law is not rules and regulations. Take a little sip real quick. The law does not represent rules and regulations. The law represents the character and the nature of God. Let me say that one more time. The law does not represent, you know, rules that you ought to follow and not to follow more than it represents the very nature and the character of God, a God who cannot change. Why is that important for me to mention? Because a law is what we're subject to. It's not simply something that we choose to follow or don't follow. See, the Hebrews understood this concept. The, the children of Israel, the Israelites understood this concept. They, they did not understand the law as the thing that they follow as, as we understand the law. We, we think of the law as, like, for example, a legal system. That's how, that's how the Western world reads the, the, the Bible. They read the Bible like it's some kind of legal system. The, the Israelites did not understand it that way. They understood it as a system. Somebody with me there. They understood it as a system. Let me give you one example, and I've used this before, but I'll use it again. Think about the law of gravity. The law of gravity is a system. 
Y'all understand that? It's a system, meaning it's something that I'm subject to whether I agree to it or not. And unfortunately, it's not whether I obey or disobey it. It's simply what I'm subject to. Let me give you an example. I can never disobey gravity. I'm only subject to gravity. If I jump, what happens? I get pulled back down to the earth. If I jump, I get pulled back down to the earth. If I run and I trip over a rock and I fall, gravity causes me to fall. Now, do I go, man, I hate gravity. I'm not subject to gravity. I'm not going to obey gravity. You don't get to do that. You don't get to just say, yo, you know what? I'm not, you know what? I'm not subject to gravity. Forget gravity. Um, I'm going to do my own thing. No one, not a single person gets to disobey gravity. Gravity is not meant to be obeyed or disobeyed. Gravity is just a part of our lives. It's the reality that we face. Does anyone understand that? So if it is the reality that we face, then when we try to disobey it, it can lead us into some trouble, right? If an airplane flies, it's, it's, it's flying, but it's not disobeying gravity. There's a force that's keeping it from crashing. Okay, there's a lot of science behind that. But if that force stops and it crashes, no one goes, I can't believe gravity did this. No, no one is angry with gravity. No one hates gravity. You want to know why we don't hate gravity? Because it is the law and the natural law by which we were subject to. In the same way, when we read the law, we should not be reading it as if it's a bunch of rules that we ought to follow and not to follow. More than we should be looking at it as consequence, action versus reaction, action and consequence. So when we read the 10 commandments, we think that the 10 commandments are things that we need to do to go to heaven. These are the rules that we need to follow in order to go to heaven. Family, that's not the law. The law was never effective in determining whether people go to heaven or not. The law was never intended to determine whether we were, we go to heaven or not. Obeying the law is not what gets us into heaven. Disobeying the law is not what gets us into hell. Actually, obeying and dis- disobeying the law is what leads to the consequences that we experience in our lives. So the Ten Commandments, we don't follow it for salvation. We follow it because it embodies the character of God. When we disobey it, it leads to other pain and suffering because, again, it is the law. If I jump off of a 10-story building, I'm probably going to die. So what do we say? Don't jump off a 10-story building. Why? Because of gravity. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense because when people read the Ten Commandments, they read it like it's a law that Christians ought to follow in order to go to heaven. Oh, that's so unfortunate because the law wasn't written to Christians. The law is simply revealing the character of God. Does that that make sense? The law was not written to you. The Ten Commandments was actually not written to you. All the laws in Exodus were not written to you, but rather to reveal the character of God. And God is revealing it to these people to shape them out to become the nation of priests that would show the world what God is like. 
when God tells these people that they will be set aside. The word for set aside is holy. He says to them, be holy for I am holy. Notice, holiness was not purity. Holiness was distinctness. He was literally saying, be fundamentally different for I am fundamentally different from everything else. This is important because a lot of times in the holiness movements, they they make holiness movements righteousness movements. Sorry if I if I go there real quick. Like holiness is always right. Make sure you obey the Bible. Make sure you obey these things because it's all about holiness. Guess what? Obeying the Bible was never about holiness. Okay, it was about revealing the holiness of God, the character of God. Now, I'm sorry that was a rant in and of itself. I don't want to lose track. So the family of God now in Exodus has become a nation. Abraham's family has become a nation and now God has made a covenant with them and he gives them the law by which they will be shaped into becoming the people that they promised to be with God. But guess what the scriptures tell us? It shows us in Exodus that these people failed to do it. They couldn't do it. They continued to fail. So now they have the presence of God. They have the covenant with God. They have the law that instructs them in how to be these people and yet Exodus ends with the people who have the law but do not have access to the presence of God. Exodus ends with Abraham, sorry not Abraham, Exodus ends with Moses not being able to enter into the tabernacle. Moses could not enter into the presence of God. Why? Because of the sin of the people. So what that reveals to us is the law was never effective in giving people. The the law at this point was not effective, was never effective. The Ten Commandments was never effective in getting people to have access and connection with God. Never. That's what the, it's right, it's clear. I hope you guys see what I see. Again, we read through this. You can go back, catch the read and rants from before. All I'm doing is I'm doing a quick recap. Today might just be a recap day. And then we'll continue on with the reading because I want to get at least read a little bit of numbers with you guys, but we may not have the time. But I felt like I had to recap this so that all my IG fam can be on the same page. The law was never effective. The book of Exodus ends with the children of Israel not being able to enter into the presence of God. So what is Leviticus all about? Leviticus is about how God now makes amendments to his law. He adds things to the law. Leviticus is more law. And what is that part of the law? The law in Leviticus was a law in how these unholy and unrighteous people can have access to God. Say that one more time. How an unholy and unrighteous people can have access to a holy God. If God is holy, anything that's unholy cannot be in his presence. So then how can these people be in God's presence? God makes a way out. And the way God makes a way out is is that God institutes the law of the atonement. Leviticus is all about the atonement. Again, this is not written to us, but you'll see how it's written for us. It's not written to us because, again, the law 
was to them. And yet the law reveals to us that God, who now sees a people who cannot enter into his presence, even after they make a covenant with him, to be the ministers of, 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 of righteousness, to be the nation of priests who would be representatives of God on earth. And because they couldn't become that and they couldn't accomplish it, they found the same thing Adam did. God says, I'm going to give you a way back in. And the way back in, if I can put Leviticus into you know, one sentence, is unholy, unrighteous people have been given access back into a holy and righteous God through the sacrifice that is ministered by a priest. That's actually Leviticus in a nutshell. Through a sacrifice ministered by a priest. The priests now who are instituted among them become the mediators who represent the people to God. And the people now would bring blood sacrifices and by the shedding of blood, by the sacrifice, God gave them access back into his presence. He said, this is how they will come back into my presence. All you need is a sanctified priest who would bring a sacrifice. And through that sacrifice, you can come back into my presence. That's what Leviticus is all about. Notice Leviticus was not about the laws that you ought to follow. You always say, well, what about the verse in Leviticus where it speaks about tattoos? It doesn't talk about tattoos. That's not what Leviticus is about. What about the verse in Leviticus um, that talks about, how, you know, having your hair lined up and and can you can you shave your head? Can you cut your head? Here's the thing. Cut your hair um, um, or that men have to wear beards and that they must wear beards. First point. Don't ever forget this. And please don't ever do this when you're reading the Torah. Don't ever do this when you're reading the Pentateuch in the Bible. It was not written to you. So when you read that law about the beard or about hair, about how you ought to dress, about all these things, they were not written to you. None of them were written to you. They were written to the children of Israel to shape them into becoming a holy nation, separate. Why am I saying that? Because we're going to see now how Christ comes in and accomplishes all that. But that's, that's later on down the line. Right now we stay in this tension. Are y'all with me, fam? I hope this is making sense because for many people, they read the text and they put themselves in it and they say, okay, what things do I need to do? What things do I need to do? How do I need to do this? How do I accomplish this? What, what? And, and, and that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate because that's not the story that God wants people to understand in his text. Nowhere in the Bible did it say this is for you right now. No. This is to the children of Israel. Moses writing the law. And we begin to see the implications of Jesus now. And we understand what Jesus did for us. But up to this point, we're not in the story. Okay? We're not in the story. There's nothing here that we you should read and go, this is what I ought to do. And how there are no laws here for you to follow. But only at this point do you begin to see the character, the heart of God. So Leviticus was all about a system for how unholy, unrighteous people can enter back into the presence of God. Enter back into the presence of God. 
Because remember what they said in Genesis chapter, no, not Genesis, Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, Moses said to God, if your presence doesn't go with us, we will not leave this mountain. So they did not leave Mount Sinai until they had the presence of God. So God instituted a law that would lead them back into his presence. They spent one year at Mount Sinai. Leviticus is that year that they spent at Mount Sinai. The year they spent at Mount Sinai, putting into practice how they remain in the presence of God. They did not have an issue with, with um, accepting the law. They did not have an issue accepting that this sacrifice pays for my sins. They didn't have an issue with that. When they came with the sacrifice, they left free. When they gave the sacrifice to the priest and the priest shed the blood and the blood was shed, they left knowing that they were free and absolved from that sin. When the atonement was made, that's literally what the atonement is. It is a payment. The atonement is a satisfactory payment for sin. And they would do that continually, 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 continually. Not only was there their atonement for people, there were um, for individuals, there were atonement for households, there were atonement for priests, there were atonements for a people. Somebody understand that? There were atonements even for the entire nation. Sacrifices that were made. They did not have a problem at all. Once they made the atonement, they left free. We're the ones who have a problem. Because we think the law is a rule that we ought to follow. Not a character of God that we need to be transformed into. Did you hear that? The law was never a rule that we were meant to follow. But the law reveals a character that we were meant to be transformed into. So if you're sitting there, well, which one do I do? Which one do I do to go to heaven? Which one do I do to go to hell? Which one is this? Which one is that? I've, you know, do I go to hell if I do this? Do I go like if if all if that's all we're doing, <laughs> then um, our righteousness, as he says in in Isaiah sixty one, he says our righteousness is filthy rags unto God, filthy rags unto God, and. Side note, I know I'm cheating a little bit, but if anything we do leads to our salvation, then you understand how profoundly, how we have profoundly minimized what Jesus Christ did on the cross. If somehow you think you participated with Christ for your salvation, ooh, there's something profoundly prideful in you. There's something profoundly prideful in you. I see some people, I hear, I see someone who chat who, who said that this is false teaching. Please tell me where it is. <laughs> Please tell me where it is. I have no issue uh, addressing anything. Please tell me where it is. Because that's what I came here to do. I came to set people free to read the scripture for what it says. We're not adding anything. I'm not subtracting anything. I'm literally reading the scripture. <laughs> I'm telling you what the Bible says. Don't take what somebody told you about what the Bible says. Read it for yourself. Okay? And that's why we do the read and rant. I want to make sure everybody understands. Please, 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 please understand this. Don't even take my word for it. I'll say this again. Do not take my word for it. Okay? For the... 
if anybody says I'm a false teacher, that's fine. So anybody who hears that and says, this guy is teaching false doctrine, this guy is a false teacher, he's not, guess what? You have the privilege of reading the same thing that I'm reading. Read on it for yourself, okay? I believe that this is the year, this is the generation that's gonna be set free from indoctrination, set free from, from doctrines and teachings, set free. You need to read your scripture. You need to read it in its totality. Don't give me little slices and pieces here and there. Read through your whole scripture. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I'm coming at you tough, but I got to come at some people. I got to come at some folks who are setting themselves in bondage because what they want to know is, or what they want to do is, is they want to take salvation in their own hands. You want to take righteousness in your own hands. It's pride. And we have to speak into that. It's our own pride. And that's why so many have been oppressed by scripture because nobody actually reads it. No one reads it. They just take what a pastor said to them. They take some doctrines that were written for them. They take, but they never actually read it for themselves. I'm sorry if I come at you tough, but I have to come at you tough because this is the passion that I have. It's unfortunate that there are people who will live in bondage and never truly experience salvation because they're too busy trying to follow rules. The Bible was not, the, 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 this, this portion of scripture was written for you. And I haven't even said why and how it is written for you, but it is written for you. It is important. It is necessary. But the problem is, is you're reading it as if it's written to you. Stop. Stop reading it as if it is written to you. It is not written to you. Okay. And Paul knew that. We can go back to the New Testament. And Paul knew that. So much so. I'm sorry. I'm ranting. I'm ranting. But let me let me get this out the way. Paul knew that. You know, he, he knew that so much so that he was telling the Hebrews. He was telling the Jews, stop trying to force the law on the new Christians who were Gentiles. Stop trying to force the law on the Christians in Ephesus. Stop trying to force the law on the Christians in Corinth. Stop trying to force the law. Go back to Acts chapter 15. You'll see all the Jewish Christians wanted to bring their Judaism. That is what we're reading right now, the Judaism. They wanted to bring their Judaism to all the other folks. They wanted to bring their Judaism to all the Gentile believers because for, to them, they felt like this is what it meant to be a Christian was following all the Judaic law. And yet Paul set them free and told them we are not under the law, but we are under grace. Go back to Acts chapter 15. There was a council of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, Jewish elders and Gentile elders. And notice what it took for them to agree on what constituted a Christian. Go back and read it and see what it says there in Acts chapter 15. When it said what constituted a faithful believer. And you will not see anywhere in there where it said, how they follow the Old Testament and how they follow the law. These people who came to Jesus in Ephesus didn't even know the, the, the law because the law was never given to them. The Ten Commandments was never given to them. <laughs> the, the, the law that we see in Leviticus was never given to them. You didn't see them going around sacrificing goats and, and, and sacrificing rams and bulls and, and sacrificing turtle doves. You never saw them doing that because they never knew those things. That was the peculiarity of the children of Israel. That was what they did. 
in order to fulfill the law that was given to them. Christ didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you feel like I'm attacking you, but I, I know there's a lot of religious Christians who are even listening to this right now. And this makes you very, very, very uncomfortable. And the reason why you're uncomfortable is because you have to actually confront the many years of teaching that you've been given. And you're going to realize that really it wasn't what you discovered in the text. It was what somebody told you to believe. That's what's making us uncomfortable. It's because it's something somebody told us to believe, not something we actually discovered as we were reading through scripture. And so um, I say that because this is what Leviticus is about. Leviticus is really about the atonement. And so when ex where Exodus ends with a people who had the law, but were not in the presence of God, Leviticus ends with the people who now have the presence of God. Because now they have the atonement, the payment for any infraction to the law. <laughs> and then we get into numbers. We finally got here. And in the book of numbers, now they're ready to get up and leave. They hadn't left all through Leviticus. They stayed right there at Mount Sinai. And in the book of numbers, they get up and they leave. They get up and they move because now they have the presence of God. Remember what they said? They, they told God in Exodus chapter 33 at the mountain. Again, I'm going to bring that up. Moses implored God. He said to God, if, if your presence is not with us, we are not leaving this mountain. And so that's what they did. They stayed until they had the presence and God gave them access to the presence through the sacrifice and through a priest. We see foreshadows of Jesus Christ all through this, but I'm not going there yet. I want you to know, I want you to read what the Bible is saying. I don't even want to rush you into it. So through the priest who administer the sacrifice and through the sacrifice, now they have the presence now they're getting ready to go. They spent one year at Mount Sinai. One year and over a month at Mount Sinai. And then they get up. They get up now and in numbers, they start by counting an army. Because what they knew was, is even though the land was promised to them, okay? Even though the land was promised to them, there were still people who were going to resist them. They needed an army to take back what God had for them. And I know I preached this before and I'll minister this to you now. Don't ever think that the things that God promises you doesn't require a battle. Do not ever think that. Don't ever think just because something's promised to you that it will be handed over to you. That's a word for, if you leave with anything today, stop thinking that what God has promised to you will be handed to you. <laughs> In numbers now, they get up, but they form an army because even though the land was promised to them, they had to fight for it. If God promised you your marriage, guess what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to fight for it. 
If God promised you a career in whatever field, guess what? You're going to have to fight for it. God may have promised, whatever God has promised you, often you've got to fight for it. There will be resistance. There will be people who will disagree. There will be people who won't even see it for you. There will be people who will oppose you. And yet if God promises it to you, you go and you fight for it. It won't be handed to you. Often I find that people sometimes doubt that God promised them something when they face resistance in that very thing or they face opposition in that very thing. That's unfortunate. That's unfortunate because often it's the opposition that confirms the promise. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. I want us to get to through to numbers. So the people finally get up. The Levites were set aside to carry the tabernacle. And now they are on the move. And once they get on the move, remember, they haven't moved for a year. They left Egypt, stayed at Mount Sinai for a year, and now they're on the move. And now we see that in the book of Numbers. In Numbers, they start moving again. But now that they start moving, there are some problems. Now that they start moving to the land that was promised to them, now there are problems. They were tired of the manna. We see that in the text. They were tired of the manna, and so they asked for um, they asked for meat. So God gave them meat, and then all of a sudden, there's all this disagreement between them. Moses had to deal with, um, with two insurrections. None of that happened when they were at Mount Sinai. It all happened when they started to move. I find that interesting because it's something that I believe even ministers to me is generally people are okay with stagnation. If we stay in the regular rhythm of things, it speaks to our character. If we stay in the regular rhythm of things, you know, we just, you know, we do this and this is what we always do and this is how it's always done and there's nothing you need to change. Everything's good, you know, we're Gucci, you know. Um, when nothing changes, people have a way of just being okay with each other. Yeah, we could tolerate each other. People tolerate each other because, you know, this is a regular rhythm of things. But then the moment you begin to move, all of a sudden, there's all kinds of discomfort. All of a sudden, there's all kinds of disagreement. All of a sudden, there's all this dissension. And, and that's what we see here in the book of Numbers. Everything was good until they moved. Everything was good until they moved. And once they started to move, they started to complain. Just a leadership tip for some people. Do not ever subject yourself to the emotion of your congregation or your audience or your organization. Do not ever, this is a side note, I'm just ranting today because we're not going to have the time to read. I know it's almost nine. Guys, I'm sorry. We're going to do more reading. We're going to actually read numbers. We're going to start reading numbers tomorrow, okay? We'll start reading tomorrow. Today, I just wanted to recap up to, up to numbers, but I want to just minister to you real quick. Do not ever subject yourself to the emotional countenance of your organization, to how the people in your, don't subject, not to say that you shouldn't be sensitive to how your people feel. You should but do not ever subject your decisions on how people in your organization or people that you're responsible for feel. And the reason why I say this is because 
often the reason why you'll find is there's a lot of discontentment in your group or in your organization is because you are ushering change. Anytime you usher change, problems will arise and people won't give or won't credit the issue to the problem, They'll cre- uh, to the change. They'll begin to look for other problems to help justify why they feel the way they feel. When the reality is, is that they're uncomfortable with change. Whenever change is happening, people get uncomfortable. Whenever change is transpiring, people start to have issues with each other. They start to have disagreements. People will start talking. Notice what happens to Moses here. When they were at the mountain, everybody loved Moses. Everybody served Moses. Everybody, they were under Moses. They were under his leadership. He was so wise that they came to him and he became so fatigued just judging all the people. But the moment they got up and started moving, Moses was the problem. How is it that you as the leader went from being the solution to becoming the problem? The reason was because you were now ushering change. And the moment that you usher change, they never told Moses they were uncomfortable with going to the promised land. They were just uncomfortable with going to a place that they were uncertain about. Then they started to say, we were better off back there because that's what people do. The way you know, the way you identify whether people have an issue with the change itself is when they start having nostalgia about what used to be. Mm -hmm. They start having nostalgia about how things used to be. You know, when we were back there, we didn't have to hunger. When we were back there, we weren't stressed about anything. Things were so good back then. If you've got backward thinking people, backward thinking people are always going to get in the way and they're always going to resist your move moving forward. So here's the thing. If you submit to the emotion and the countenance of people who are uncomfortable with change, you will not move the people in the direction that God has called you to move it. This is the issue that I believe a lot of leaders face. This is an issue that I believe even the church is facing today. The church today, and this is the end of my rant. The church today is experiencing a precipitous decline. And part of the reason why they're experiencing this precipitous decline is because the church has lost its relevance. The church has lost vision. That's what I believe. I truly believe this, that the church is just comfortable with having a service on Sunday. But most churches will tell you when they look at the numbers and they look at the statistics, most churches will attest that attendance has gone down and attendance continues to go down. Just this past year alone, I'm sorry, not, not this past year, the year before, before COVID, Before COVID, 700 churches were closed every month in America. 700 churches were closed every month, but we want to keep doing things the same way. We want to keep doing the same thing. We want to keep having church on Sunday. We want to keep doing, you know, we want to keep doing what we always do. This is how we've always done it. It works. Why do we want to change that? This is so good. Why would we want to do that? It was so good back there. The problem is, is that today there are leaders who would rather satisfy the present congregation rather than reaching towards the promised land, the promise of God. The promised land was not your church. The promised land was the city. The promised land was not your com- was not the church, but the promised land was your community. 
The promised land was not the little church you got in the corner or the big church that you have in the big building. The church was never in the building. The church was a people that were called to go and to bring the church everywhere they go to every sphere of influence. The church has lost its influence because the church is about the building and about the worship and about the moment that they spend in worship than they are actually about ushering in real transformative change and to move in the power of God. That is the issue. And so there are leaders today who they've, I've gotten calls from so many pastors and so many leaders from churches that you would say, oh, that church is not doing so bad. And they tell you, yeah, attendance is down 50%. They tell you, man, things, things aren't what they used to be. Church ain't what it used to be. Now, the problem is, is you have been staying in Mount Sinai and it's time for you to get up and go. The problem is, is if you get up and go, people are going to have a problem with you. <laughs> people are going to have a problem with what you do. They're going to have a problem. They're going to find issues to have a problem with. Think about this for a second. Oh, I know I'm ranting. I know I'm, I'm going to close. We read, uh, what was it? Last uh, on Friday, we read about how Miriam and Aaron came into dissension with Moses. His own family members came into dissension with Moses because Moses married an Ethiopian woman. Now, we could talk about the racism of Miriam. We could talk about that. We could talk about her cultural discontentment. We could talk about that. We could talk about her prejudice. We could talk about that. But are we are, are we not going to talk about the entire year and a half that they were together that this wasn't an issue? Are we going to talk about that? Are we going to talk about the entire year and a half that they were at the mountain and they and they did not have a problem with Moses and his Ethiopian wife? Oh, yeah, Miriam was racist. Miriam was prejudiced, no question about it. And she suffered as a result of it. But this Ethiopian woman was not a problem. Until when? Until they got up and moved. I, I got to make sure everybody's with me and they understand this. That what wasn't a problem before will become a problem all of a sudden. The, the prejudice was already in her heart. The racism was already in her heart. The problem was now that they're out of their place of comfort. The discontentment now begins to brew up. And now she feels like she's entitled to speak on it. They need a reason to get rid of Moses. Moses is giving, we need to rein this guy in because this guy's putting us in an uncomfortable place. We were okay at the mountain. We were good there. God's presence was with us. We had God's presence. Everything was good there. Why couldn't we stay here? Because you would die there. You can't survive here. So let's call Moses out and say, Moses, why would you marry that Ethiopian woman? Why aren't you marrying your own? Why would you bring this woman into, into the fold? Racism has existed since the book of Numbers. And so some pastors start ushering change, and this is an encouragement. Some leaders 
They're organizational leaders here. We start ushering change and people start talking about you and all the problems they have with you and everything that they're frustrated about you and all your character flaws as if you didn't have them before. No, they were they they were able to tolerate them while you kept them comfortable. But the moment the people in your organization get uncomfortable, now they got all kinds of issues with you. Not to say that you shouldn't work on yourself, uh, Mr. Leader and Mrs. Leader. But often we get caught into thinking there's something wrong specifically in that moment with us. Not realizing the reason why all this is coming up is because change is being ushered. I've always said this, any organization that isn't changing has an expiration date. Any organization that isn't changing has an expiration date. And so I've had pastors who I've spoken to and they've told me, hey, listen, we're here now, we're not changing. And I've told them, you have put an expiration date on your ministry. You put an expiration date on your church. Maybe it's five years, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's 15 years, but your church probably won't exist. And maybe that's the calling that you have. Maybe you were called to just journey with these people all the way to the end. And that's okay as well. There's nothing, I want to make sure everybody understands that as well. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's something wrong when the corporate church doesn't change. And so, um, that was a mini rant. But I, I had to share that because we get to this place in the text and now, as we were reading, ready? In Numbers chapter 20, Moses becomes so discontent in Numbers 20, so discontent with the people that Moses loses the promise. Because of his pride, he strikes the rock twice and gives them water. And as a result of his discontentment, now Moses, his discontentment and his pride, now Moses finds himself on the outside looking in. Aaron doesn't get to see the promised land. Moses won't get to see it either. So family, this is what this is all about. This was my rant was about today, I guess. We're not going to read today. I thought I was going to read. Tomorrow, we're going to start on Numbers 21. I wanted to give you background here for you to understand what this story is about. Genesis, the family of God has begun. Exodus, the family of God has become a nation of God who now leave Egypt to go back to the land that was promised to them. Uh, they make a covenant with God. That covenant led them to be separate from God. Leviticus, God instituted in his law to bring, the, to bring his people back into covenant with him. And now we're in numbers. God's people, is ba they're back on the move to go to the land that was promised. Uh, you'll see here in the text that a whole generation was lost because they doubted the promise of God. You say, man, the journey to, to, the, to, the, to the promised land was just this was a long, arduous journey. It wasn't. It was the distance between Miami and Orlando. It was the distance between 
New York and Newark. It was a distance between Baltimore and Pennsylvania. The distance between LA and San Diego. It wasn't that far. And yet they spent 40 years. Because there are things that need to be done in order for the people to really live in the promise. The promise of God cannot be sustained without the presence of God. That's what I'm going to close with today. The promise of God cannot be sustained without the presence of God. Because without the presence of God, you can get the promise of God. And through just your sin and your thinking and your frame of thought, you can lose the promise of God. And for many people who want the promises of God, understand that the promises of God are of no value without the presence of God. You want God to give you a husband and yet you have not yet enjoyed his presence and been affirmed by him. You want God to give you a wife and yet you haven't experienced the promise. You want the child and not realizing that without the prompt, without the presence of God, you cannot sustain the promise of God. So family, seek seek family the presence of God he's given you full access to his presence we're going to cheat for a minute we said that to, for an unholy and unrighteous people to get into the presence of God it required a priest and a sacrifice Jesus if you read through Hebrews you'll learn that Jesus was the perfect priest and Jesus brought himself as the perfect sacrifice. He was the priest and he was a sacrifice. And by doing so, he fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill. He has given us access to his presence through his sacrifice on the cross. Our access to God has been restored. You don't need to, to fight for it. You don't need to, to, you just need to believe it. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us, Lord. I just ask, Lord, as we close out today, um, Lord, you you led in whatever way you wanted to lead. And, and so we allowed that. And so, Father, I just ask, Lord, as we journey with a whole new family, Lord, on IG as well as TikTok and Facebook, as we journey with a whole new family, Lord, as we come together, Lord, to read your word, Lord, or teach us, Lord, to read with the right posture. Teach us, Lord, to be encouraged, Lord, as we see what you're accomplishing through a people that you've called and that these people, Lord, who could not fulfill on their own, found one amongst them to be the one to fulfill it. And so, Lord, we anticipate reaching that point and that end in your scripture. So, Father, just teach us your ways. Um, teach us your heart. Teach us your will. Reveal who you are. Reveal who we are. And reveal who you intend us to be. And we ask that in your name we pray. Amen and amen.